Park. It's an 87th Precinct podcast. This is the only podcast in the world dedicated to Ed McBain's seminal series of police procedural novels, which began in 1956 with Cop Hater and ended in 2005 with Fiddlers. There were 55 books in the series, and today's podcast looks at book number 37, Lightning. To review the book, I'm joined by two highly charged individuals, Mr. Morgan Frankenstein's Monster Brown. Hello. <laughs> and Mr. Stephen Torchy the Battery Boy Royston. Well, afternoon. My name is Paul Abbott, and I'm currently dressed as Raichu, the evolved form of the electric mouse Pokemon Pikachu, as I usually am. I hope uh, everyone's been able to check out our special episode that was out recently, the interview I did with Erin MacDonald, author of the Ed McBain, Evan Hunter Literary Companion and the new Ian Rankin one. And also you got to watch my five-minute video review of Helen Hudson's book, Maya Meyer, as well, which I finally got round to reading. Oh, right, okay. Which gets another mention here, doesn't it, actually? Oh, yes, I thought it was a a relevant time to do it, actually, to, to dig into the book. Anyway... You know what to do if you're enjoying the show. Rate, review wherever you're listening and let people know if you think they'll enjoy it. That's really it. We'll carry on whatever happens. <laughs> I would just like to point out, I've mentioned this is book number 37, right? We're 28 years into this series and we've still got 31 years to go. All right, okay. Such was his slowing down of pace, I suppose. Yeah, because this is book 37 of 55, and mm-hmm. we've only got another 18 to go, so yeah. it's definitely, there's, yeah, much, much slower than in the early days. But blimey, gosh, it's over a long time. <laughs> it really is. It gets a bit of a mention in here, doesn't he? Like some of the characters talk about how old they are, which he kind of evades, doesn't he? <laughs> There's all sorts of weird references in this. How old are you? Yeah. Older than I care to remember. <laughs> but yes, before we get stuck into it, I'll have a look at some 1984 context stuff. Or rather, I thought I would. I mean, let's have some obvious things. There's a Winter Olympics in Sarajevo and a Summer Olympics in LA in 1984. Mm-hmm. And then as I carried on doing my research... It was one of the most depressing years of events I think I've ever read. And that's yeah. there's some stiff competition because most years are really depressing. You said that last time, I think. Well, last time it was just nuclear disasters all happening around the world. Which is fairly, fairly bad. So this is worse than, worse than an entire year of nuclear holocaust then. <laughs> yeah, because most, most of those things didn't actually come to pass. Whereas in 1984, there was lots of bombings, assassinations, explosions, accidents, murders. It became like, I just can't, I can't start listing this. Otherwise, we'll be so depressed by the time we start the book that we'll just... So what I thought I'd do is um, I had a quick look at the New York Times bestsellers list for 1984. So we had a bit of context literary wise uh, about the world that this book came into. And obviously this is the New York Times. This isn't a some sort of universal list of things but just let me know if you've read or or know anything about any of these books so i'll start out one of them is a book called poland by james mitchener hmm. myself ring your bell, no. pet cemetery by stephen king certainly have read that one possibly i don't know if that's the most famous on the list it might well be a book called who killed the robbins family by thomas chastain no no and who did I don't know. Well, we don't really know. 
I think you'll like the title of a couple of the ones in this list, Steve. Oh, because right. there's a book, a book by Robert Ludlum next. Oh, they, they've always got good titles, those. Yeah. Always. So it'll be the something, something, something. Well, not not quite that long, but it's it's the Aquitaine progression. Yeah, so there you go, yeah. <laughs> See, it doesn't make any sense. Boy, you know, you kind of want to read it, don't you? You know, find out. What was so progressive about the... Uh... About Aquitaine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Whatever that may be. The next one on the list is Full Circle by... Not the novelization of the Doctor Who story, but uh, Full Circle by Danielle Steele, who Ooh. is the best-selling living author on the list. Oh, I thought you were going to say the uh, the book of the television series, Michael Palin, but a bit early for that, I suppose. That's yeah. Perhaps that's where he got his inspiration from. From Danielle Steele. Yeah. It's a proper mid-80s kind of mum on the holiday kind of read, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, just a bit. Uh, a book called And Ladies of the Club by Helen Hooven Santmeyer. <laughs> I've never heard of. No, sounds, sounds wonderful. First Amongst Equals by Geoffrey Archer. Oh, God. Who, for people of our age, was just the, a punchline to a lot of sort of satirical political jokes, really. Serial bullshitter. Yeah, serial bullshitter Jeffrey Archer. <laughs> then we have a Frederick Forsyth novel, which also has oh, a that... very famous, <laughs> famous sort of the something something title. Right. Yeah, his the. So it's got it starts with the, does it? It does. The fourth protocol. The fourth protocol. Was it? Yeah. Well, what a great yeah, guess. Well done. And I didn't have you ever know... read it? No. I started, <laughs> re- I started reading one of it. See, he's quite interested in that. There's some good films of his books but i think he was a little bit of a lunatic kind of empire man wasn't he a little bit lunatic empire man i don't know yeah yeah Yeah, i've never really been uh, felt the need to read it and i do like the um i've told you many times the film of the day of the jackal but i started reading the book of the day of the jackal and it was just so tediously boring i just couldn't (laughs) get into it Uh, the last one on this list, anyway, is a book called The Talisman by Stephen King and Peter Straub. Ooh. Straub. Oh, yeah. Don't that's, know how you pronounce it. That's one that I haven't ever read. Is that inspired by the board game? Yeah. What came first, the board game or the book? Or just objects that are talismans. Well, possibly, yeah. yeah. yeah I've, I've read most sort of earlier Stephen King, but I've never delved into that one. I've never really investigated Peter Straub too much at all, but... I did used to see that. And, uh, yeah, I don't know anything about it. Curious about it. So that's the literary landscape, certainly according to the New York Times anyway, that this book is has been dropped into. Clearly thrillers and sort of supernatural horror and, mm. and then a, some big selling uh, romance drama things as well. So It's a good time for airport bookshops, definitely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I wonder what yeah. Dick Francis was up to. <laughs> Some horse-related drama coming out of his typewriter. We might be coming back to things to do with horses very soon anyway. We might. Oh. Yeah. We'll jump into a bit of context stuff, though, because Evan Hunter himself was still fairly busy at the time. So for 1984, he doesn't have anything on the screen in 1984 or 1985. It's all literature here we have jack and the beanstalk published which is a matthew hope novel we have lightning the book we're discussing but we also have and all through the house the short story 
the Christmas short story of the 87th Precinct, which we're sort of waiting until hopefully it coincides with Christmas to talk about at some point. Because it had a couple of different releases. But yeah, it was published in Playboy and in the special uh, book club edition in 1984. But he also published a book under his Evan Hunter name, those are all under Ed McBain, called Lizzie, which I have to hand here. I have in my hand a book called Lizzie, which is a fictionalised telling of the Lizzie Borden story. Hmm. Was she somebody who was kidnapped by somebody? I think Lizzie Borden with an axe gave her mother 40 wax, as the rhyme goes. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. Yeah. Oh. So she was a famous murderess, oh. basically, in the late 1800s. And a very famous real case of, of matricide and patricide is that right that's the one and this is uh, evan hunter's researched deeply researched take on what happened and his p- personal belief about about it told in a fictionalized way he spent ages researching and writing this book and it flopped massively yeah essentially at the same time a non-fiction book came out with exactly the same name just called lizzie about the same thing and it caused sort of confusion in the in the sort of marketplace and struck Evan Hunter quite badly at the time. It put him off being Evan Hunter as an author for a little bit. Anyway, it was a bit of a blow to his confidence. Aww. Yeah, so it's a part of the switch to the sort of output you see why the McBain 87 Precinct books become bigger and more involved is really because Evan Hunter was a little on the back burner after that because he'd had his confidence knocked somewhat. Mm-hmm. Although the reviews on the back of this from the time say it's very readable and provocative and engaging, and I've yet to read it, but I'll get round to it at some point. Poor old Evan. Yeah, well, just goes to show. But then talking, if you ever read anything about things that Evan Hunter never got published, it's loads he didn't get published. He'd write huge, massive, thick books about something he wrote one called words i think which was all about the publishing industry mm. and he was he was taking it around trying to get it published for years even after and this is when he was a well-established author and basically nobody wanted it and he ended up burning it apparently i mean it might have been massively libelous as well but <laughs> <laughs> you can kind of imagine that it would be actually <laughs> yeah i'd have thought so not, not a man to let a grudge go is he no and in later years he often referred to a book he'd written about the whole history of the human race (laughs) wow a modest project which seems ambitious to the point of total folly and that never got published either so it wasn't a hit every time he he put anything out by by a long shot right let's get to let's get to lightning quick quick rundown of the facts of lightning published by arbor house in 1984 in paperback by Avon in 1985, and in the UK, it's still Hamish Hamilton and Pan. Copyright date is the 31st of August 1984, and the dedication is for Ruth and Basil Levin. And I did try to find out something about them, and I think I found something. It was really hard to find out, because not everyone who gets a book dedicated to them is a famous person, as we've discovered before. But I managed to find a Ruth Levin who'd been a resident in Sarasota, Florida, where Evan Hunter had lived for a while. Uh, and Ruth and Basil Levin ran a thing called Living Walls, which was an interior design service. Oh. <laughs> so. 
So they, there we go. They must have just been neighbours of his or something, maybe. Yeah, neighbours, friends might have met through through their business or something like that. But I did find out that she liked to say that certainly Ruth and Basil Levin both together and individually like to sail, scuba dive and do theatre improv and ham radio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wonderful. So there you go. So the, I, I assume that I've found out the right person that these are dedicated to. It seems likely anyway. Excellent. Good research. I wonder if he, he, he ever dedicated a book to somebody we didn't know, you know, maybe. Like That's his... some sort of bizarre dedication trolling. Yeah. Imagine if some, yeah. A book next Imagine door's if... dedicated a book to us. <laughs> oh, dear. There's an adaptation of this. The two books before this one and this one are the, the three NBC productions in the 90s. And this was the first one to be produced. They did them in some bizarre reverse order thing, which was the one that has Randy... <coughs> excuse me. I'm See, I get quite upset when I'm talking about these adaptations. <laughs> Probably with good reason. <laughs> yeah. It's Randy Quaid as Steve Carella, uh, Ron Perkin... Oh, see, I've I've gone completely to pieces. Ron Perkins as Maya Maya, Deanna Bray as Teddy Franklin, and in the adaptation, this is the one where Carella, Steve Carella, and Teddy meet, and it also contains the plot. the The Kling Augusta breakup from the earlier book is shoved into this story. Oof. It's a mess. It's an absolute mess. Well, as if there's not enough quite going on in this book that you need a bit, a bit more just to make it. Uh... Yeah. Have you watched it then? Yeah, I have, and, yeah. And is it just a mess, really? Yeah, it is. It's 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 crap. It's <laughs> it's awful. I don't think it's the worst. the The worst one I think was the one I mentioned last time, which was for Ice. Uh, I think that's definitely the worst. But this is not. It's not good lightning anyway. I can. I can't imagine what he would have felt like having seen it but again it was affected by nbc being very cautious about censorship at the time so that was part of what affected its you know the violence and the storytelling yeah if you're going to be um if you're going to be worrying about uh, the sort of content that might need to be censored this is probably not the one to adapt is it no definitely not but you think adapting these sort of tv would be like idiot proof wouldn't you yeah, you know, harder to do a bad job than a good job, surely. Apparently not. <laughs> no, they, people seem to go out of their way to make a bad job of it. Really, mm. by the time he's written this book, of course, Hill Street Blues has changed the the landscape of of crime drama on TV. Anyway, mm-hmm. and I'm sure we'll get to that at some point. Oh, we will. <laughs> I think we should probably just say up front, as usual. Well. As we try and remember to say, in terms of spoilers, if we don't talk about spoilers in this book, we can't talk about this book. So if you don't want to know <laughs> anything about what's happened in this book, well... Read, read it first. Yeah. You better yeah. stop listening and go and read it. Yeah, because yeah. this this book in particular is, is going to be very hard to discuss without talking about spoilers, I think. So can I just check, is this... First time reading this for anyone, or have we all read this one before? I've definitely read this one before, yeah. No, I've read this before. Okay, me too. I think I'd possibly blanked a lot of it out <laughs> yeah. of, of my mind. Yeah, kind of oddly. I I kind of slightly started remembering more of it the more I read, but initially, yeah, I kind of couldn't quite remember what, what happened, really. It's one of those quite rare entries where... 
there's not particularly, I wouldn't say, like a lead kit. You know, it's proper two equally prominent plots, hasn't it, running in parallel? Yes. Which he doesn't yeah, do definitely. that often, I don't think. There's there's normally a, you know, primary and secondary plot, I would say, whereas this uh, both seem to have centre stage when you read it. I don't know. Yeah. I've My first note that I've got on my little piece of paper in front of me is, in bold letters, bold letters, capital letters even, is this actually two books rammed together? <laughs> oh, wow. Well, then I didn't even, you didn't even pay me to say what I said. Um, possibly, possibly not, because I suppose they're obviously related, I would say. Yeah. They don't seem unhappy bedfellows in terms of issues and whatnot, if you, if you see what I mean. Well, I mean, tonally very similar. Yeah, the, yeah a, that's the, the tone I mean. of the book is that's very, I mean. yeah. very dark and violent and... Um, it is, although, as I mentioned to you the other day when we briefly uh, uh, chatted about it, there's quite a lot of humour. I don't know whether the humour just seems greater because of the you know, the juxtaposition with the very dark crimes and whatnot, but, you know, all the business with Maya's hairpiece and Ollie, yeah. Ollie Weeks wisecracking and whatnot. The, the, the humour seemed slightly turned up at certain points in the books, I thought. Yeah, well, you might be right about the contrast there about against this, quite how dark it is in the background, because we've had some very violent books before, and we've mm. had some sort of individual, almost serial killerish sort of stuff in these stories before, but I don't think any has been quite as dark as this book, no. book gets. Mm. It, was, it, it was the first one where you thought, uh, you know, they're dealing with a serial killer, like you say, is the... Obviously, serial killers were something that, by the mid '80s, were more in like the consciousness of yeah. the, the the US. I suppose were they? They were very much, you know, kind of mid '70s kind of. Yeah, the Son of Sam killings are referenced in this book. Yeah, you know, he was probably one of the very first to be given that badge, I suppose. And obviously, this is not too long after that. Um, yeah. I can't remember another serial killer in the '87th canon i don't know well we've got the deaf man i suppose as a sort of but he's a bit serial. yeah oh, well should we talk about the deaf man because he's not in this book is he uh-huh. although there's constant constant worry that he might be yeah well he his shadow, his shadow is it's, isn't it? yeah almost yeah. every chapter's got some reference to the deaf man because they've got a string of clearly related weird crimes and so their first thoughts go to the deaf man straight away we've and not seen for a little while have we we've not but that does lead to one of the unique features of this book and i think it's unique certainly yeah. up to this point in the series in that it's got a closing cliffhanger mm-hmm. it's great this is the only one that's got a cliffhanger isn't it that I'm we've had sure yeah. so far the only one that leads leads directly into the next book in the series yeah. But does he not start to do that a little bit more? Uh, I can't, I can't quite remember. But seem it, it may well do from here on. Whether in, they literally join together, well, not literally, literally join together. Literally, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that clearly, clearly, it means that by the time he's finished this book, and who knows what his process was? Did he go back and add that on the end? tag the end on to lead directly by title reference into the next one in the series. 
or unless you just fat put that in and thought, right, well, I've now got to write a book that ref has some sort of <laughs> link to a picture of eight black horses. Yeah. <laughs> It's it's just odd. There is you know there's a couple of unique features in this book, and that's that's certainly one of them, I think. But yeah, as the, yeah, the shadow of the deaf man lingers over this story, even though he's not actually in it. Mm. Um, but a, a very good yeah. end that <laughs> I quite, quite like. It, it did make me think that when we were talking about um, ice last time, we were saying that you know in some ways it was a really good sort of jumping in point for people who hadn't read the series before. This one, I think, is quite the opposite. Like, I think if you read this first out of the series without any prior knowledge, and it was just every chapter, people going, "Oh, it's the deaf man," you'd just be thinking, "What the hell are they going on about?" Mm. Yeah, because there's loads of references back, but not necessarily as well well told in a in an introductory way as as with ice. And whilst and whilst they've got quite a lot of the different like uh, caster in this, which I always very much like, you don't. Yeah, like like Morgan said, it doesn't give you a huge amount of the back their backstory. Really, he kind of somehow does away with the need to put that in. Yeah, and there's, there's, again, there's more precincts involved. Mm. Yeah, it's it's not quite as fat on the bookcase, is it? But it certainly seems a very good depth to it. Very like ice, I thought. Yeah. And a lot, lot more of the physical city rather than the weather as well. That was something with li- limited weather related, apart from being cold in a car. Because with a book called Lightning, you'd expect him to be using that term over and over again in different ways. He doesn't quite use it in as many ways as he uses the term ice from no. the last book. And the weather does, you know, make a, an appearance at some point. By and large, that's it's only used in a couple of different ways. The term "lightning" in in the book, but it really does seem to go to town a lot on the city again, and the you know the history and the physical features. Yeah, there's there's an interesting bit where, and I've just got my I've got a book full of little cut up post it notes in chapter five where he's talking about the the rise of like illness and disease and addiction in uh, West Riverhead, mm. which is essentially a discussion of the rise of disease in in the bronx yeah and there was a, a cursory check in some academic and scientific literature proved that to be the case that there was quite a lot of cases of like tuberculosis shot up in in new york in in the early 80s partly because of people being crowded together in certain areas and that sort of thing what, what you know diamond back what, what's that the analogy of diamond back is harlem all oh, right okay which is why Fat Ollie being based in Diamondback yeah. is it's like you put your biggest bigot in the area that is mainly a black population. Yeah, because yeah, he does a lot of talking about how like kind of that's just been left to rot, hasn't it? And all the abandoned buildings and yeah. whatnot. But I suppose we better outline the, 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 the two plots here. Like you say, Steve-O, there's, it's not like there's an A plot and a B plot, although I suppose... One plot because it's got it's got a reference to the title of the book. Perhaps is would be considered the a, the a, a plot. Yeah, 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 yeah. We've got a serial killer story, and we've also got a serial rapist story. So it's it's fun and laughter all round for everyone involved here. Really, it's which initially you don't know whether they're dealing with the same person, do you? I don't no. know whether it was just me being dumb or, but like. 
for a bit of the book, you think, well, are they, are they hunting down the same person who's doing... It is basically a book of violence against women, and yeah. as a result, it's it's quite a difficult read. Yeah, well, let's deal with the first plot anyway, the, the supposed ape, or the title plot, let's call it, of Lightning. We've got the series of young athletes, female athletes, being murdered by being hung from lampposts, and they've got to figure out what's going on. Yeah, I mean, what uh, do we think of this plot? I, I, it's weird. Yeah, it is. It is really, it is really weird. Yeah. Well, it's thrillery, isn't it? Rather than procedurally. Um, yeah, it's like lynchings. You know, they, they start don't they? at the beginning talking about like, is it something out like the Wild West? And it kind of is really. Uh, and unlike many of the plots as well, they're very close on the heels of this person, aren't they? Yes. Very quickly. Well, it, it deliberately makes it so. It, yeah. it, I think it, it does kind of deliberately leave clues around, which is one of the reasons why they, they think they're dealing with the deaf man, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, getting guess. mysterious parcels. and Yeah, there's quite a good... Talking about the humour, they get the... Uh, trying to Captain Frick decide whether to call the bomb squad right at the beginning and... <laughs> He like refu- yeah, refuses to make a decision, um, but yeah, the, it's, it's almost like a manhunt, isn't it, rather than an investigation? Yeah, they got a lot of clues as to his whereabouts, and uh, like you say, he leaves clues as well. So it's he sort of wants to be caught. I think is the implication. Yeah, because the actual murders aren't committed by hanging the the, the hanging of the victims. The hanging is actually just sort of a a way to, to draw more attention to them, isn't it? The, yeah. As yeah. we find. Um, so the whole thing is just very much like done for spectacle rather than than for any other motivation, really. Yeah, indeed. And in fact, it, the method used for killing these people is, is a, a banned wrestling move. Yeah. <laughs> which is a, a horrible thought. But... I've got a bit of a problem with this this plot in the sense that it seems, despite it being a serial killer and obviously motivations for why people do things as serial killers and stuff is wide and varied and and I'm not saying that, that this couldn't happen or things worse than this haven't mm-hmm. happened, but in, in the context of this story and who it turns out to be, and this is why the spoilers thing is important, is it turns out to be someone who was once a very famous Olympic athlete. Yeah, when you get that revelation, which is like right at the end, I couldn't help but thinking, I wonder whether he based this on something, because it's such a weird, almost Mm. unbelievable thing. Yeah. I don't know. You know, there's like the the big passage at the end with the guy trying to explain why he's doing, done what he's done. Yeah. Which makes no sense at all, which... Well, to me, it didn't. And then mm. perhaps that's the entire point. I don't know. You know, that they are just totally pointless, futile crimes, you know, that are totally meaningless. And that's like the, the, the absolute tragedy of it, really. Yeah, that it's it's hard to understand on any level because that bloke's trying to explain, yeah. isn't he? In his in like the the interview, and you're just like thinking, what on earth is this guy on about? Yeah, the, 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 he's, and he's quite frustrated with the cops because they don't—they clearly don't understand what he's what, what what his motivation is either. But and as a reader, you do either. I don't know if it makes for a particularly satisfying conclusion. Sort of conclusions of the crime for the reader, but because um, I'd I'd forgotten really, and I was thinking, well, was he 
disgraced as a result of something that a, a female athlete did to him or or something like that? Is that why he's taken out on these young athletes? And it's no, he just he kind of faded from public view and wants to be back in the spotlight. It's like yeah. oh, so you're killing lots of young women because of that. Okay. But you think about it as as we grown up, you know, even if you're not a fan of sports particularly, a lot amongst the most famous people you'll ever know in your life are sports people, especially Olympic athletes. Mm. So this is this book is written or is certainly it's published in 1984, but it's I think it's set in 1983, and he talks about mm. this this villain, this this serial killer, having been a, a superstar in 15 years earlier, yeah. which puts it in the 1968 Olympics. Yeah, yeah. He, and says he's a triple gold medal runner. And obviously, I went back and had a look at this, and the 68 Olympics is mainly famous for for a lot of black power stuff. Absolutely, yeah, and that's an amazing part of its legacy. So there is no equivalent person no. in in the real world. The only person who got anywhere near to having the medal tally that the baddie in this book had was a, a runner called Jim Hines. And it's, it's definitely nothing to do with that guy at all. Yeah. It was a bit of an odd, odd kind of conclusion, that. Yeah. But, um, but like I could say, maybe that's his entire point, that there is no point to it. Yeah, and there is no justifiable. Perhaps he thought it was a bit of a cop out, having a justifiable motive. Perhaps he, you know, perhaps that's his entire thing he's trying to get over is that there is no explanation. Well, possibly, possibly. But if we get to the second plot, then in the book, and this is one where we've introduced a new character, or he's introduced a new character in, in the form of um, Detective First Class Annie Rawls, who's going to be making quite a lot of appearances from here on in. So he's bolstered the female cast again by adding Annie Rawls alongside Eileen Burke, who's now back in it more or less full time at the moment and who unfortunately becomes the butt of the crime in this uh, in the most horrific way possible. And one of the big problems I have with this second plot, which is about the serial rapist, is that he introduces Annie Rawls and immediately puts her in bed with cotton whores. Yeah. So she's in straight to bed. We've got Eileen Burke, who's a brilliant detective, has been working as a decoy for a long time, gets put into this position. And so obviously you're supposed to say she's doing her job. She's being the good cop that she's she wants to be. But he makes her the victim of very violent crime. I find it really difficult to read that stuff about the serial rapist. And then furthermore, the justification that the, the baddie has Ugh. for doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, no one in that whole plotline comes out looking particularly nice, do they? Because his motivation, yeah, it, it's it's vile. But then the people who he's offended with are also pretty vile. Like everyone's horrible. It's mm. a it's a it's a really grim plotline altogether. Yeah, which is maybe the maybe the inten- you know the intention, I suppose. Well, he does put some words into Annie Rawl's mouth, basically saying about why can't people just leave each other alone? Mm. And one of my big problems with the book uh, is that it feels a little bit like Ed McBain's having his cake and eating it a bit, discussing some of these issues. He's He is portraying these horrible people, these violence. He's letting Fat Ollie do a lot of of horrible talking about about race and and being mm-hmm. a bigot and sometimes that comes across really well and you understand the 
it's not satire it's but it's criticism of of these things it's, i feel like so much of it in this book it feels a bit yeah he's just doing it because he can and it's it's I've, yeah i'm not sure what how, what i feel about it is what i'm saying yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think it's it's definitely, you know, even being charitable, it's pretty heavy-handed, isn't it? He's definitely got some points he wants to make about about sort of violence against women and, and people wanting to control women's bodies. I mean, you, you get sort of the, the little parallel subplot with Teddy Carella trying to get a trying to get a job and sort of meeting with just creepy advances from a man as well. And it's just, he's obviously got got to be in his bonnet about this, but the way he goes about sort of trying to make whatever point he's trying to make doesn't really come off. I think also he he can, as well as sort of having Fat Ollie voicing some really horrible views and that coming out just unpleasantly, it can sometimes put thoughts in the head of and words in the mouth of other characters, which you just think, I don't know if this character really would be thinking like some of his female characters, as you say, yeah. it's like, uh, I, I don't know. And, and also Arthur Brown, I, I, I think, I, I think Brown's a great character, but sometimes I think McBain gives him thoughts to think about race that I don't necessarily believe that character would be thinking. Yeah. I, I And it does just make me a bit uncomfortable too. Yeah, I find that a, a bit with Arthur Brown in this book. It feels like he's just being used for a, a bizarre purpose when the character is so much better than that in other in other instances yeah. as well. Right. But that thing about Teddy Carella is interesting because that's the start of a new uh, a new life to the character of Teddy Carella, which I think is good. Right. It starts in the yeah. books the books to come. She's got more to do and this one of the things that's triggered her is this horrible uh, advance that's made to her and she's trying to get a job yes. which is which is where you do feel like reaching into the book and and smacking the guy who tries to touch her up around the face because he's absolutely horrible yeah really really unpleasant yeah so he's, i mean he's definitely trying to do some really positive stuff in the sense that he is he's definitely trying to give his female characters more to do he's trying to provide us with more strong female characters uh, but yeah what he what he does with them sometimes might not yeah sit that well with us absolutely it's tough stuff let's put it that way but they're tough issues and that's that's another thing they are are difficult issues they're not ever going to be pleasant to read about no matter how you present them yeah i I think with with ollie weeks yeah you're right i think he does pretty ramp it up a bit too much but that might just be like the kind of the function of the times really you know when did he first introduce him in the, like the mid 70s yeah see yeah. so the mid 80s now and he you know he's probably doing that as a as a means to show that you know it's not got any better you know it, yeah you know i know what you mean the 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 issues certainly in in new york as well you know for all the progressive you know, politics like the 60s has much changed. And I think that's the way of showing, you know, you've got people like Ollie Weeks wandering around with the, you know, the crap coming out of the mouth that it that it does, that it, it, it hasn't changed. And the only way you can communicate that is by laying it on thick, really. I guess so. But yeah, you know, does he have his cake and eat it? You know, it's... I suppose I don't know. The, 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 the alternative is he doesn't bother with 
with having characters like that. And if you don't, you're then just, you're essentially sweeping a lot of the facts, the, the absolute fact that people like that exist. You're just totally sweeping that under the carpet by ignoring yeah. it. Yeah. And I think it is, you know, being a devil's advocate, I think, you know, that, that would be a bigger cop out than perhaps reading, you know, stuff that you find abhorrent yourself but yeah i know i think you're you're right he puts it there for a purpose doesn't he i think so it's not it's not gratuitous is what i mean it's not yeah and it it contributes to uh, to it not being just a series of superhero detectives as well all of whom you're supposed to swoon and and, yeah exactly over because you know ollie for like his massive flaws is like absolutely desperate to find you know the perpetrator isn't he that crime and so you're always you know he's he's a fairly you know difficult person much more so than andy parker who's got virtually no redeeming features who has no desire to do a good job to get along with anybody or do anything whereas ollie's not quite like that is he no yeah he's definitely is a bit more than just sort of a, a kind of cipher for the sort of bad cop he's he, he is a bad cop in many many respects but there's a bit more to him than that so i, I guess that does certainly make him more interesting because it, it'd be really easy for him to just kind of always have just someone there to function as a kind of uh, symbol of the fact that some cops are racist and nothing more but to, to make ollie a bit more kind of nuanced than that i guess is is good but uh, yeah sometimes it's it's uncomfortable kind of seeing him getting away with this stuff and also sometimes it's like we're we almost find ourselves rooting for yeah, him too definitely. and that's a very uncomfortable position to be in it is but despite all this i mean it would be it would be unfair to say this book is totally devoid of humor because as steve suggested it does have some great great mcbane moments in it yeah you, you get the feeling when he decides to put a bit of humor in he does ramp that up really i don't know yeah and one of the big things is the big discussion about hill street blues which does come out of the mouth of ollie weeks yeah <laughs> uh, and it refers back to the maya maya book as well because I, I was trying to work out where hill street blues was in its life cycle at the point where this book would have been written and as we we know already about like evan hunter's feelings about hill street blues and this is the point at which he sets them down on paper in a published book in 1984 which is in the middle of the run of hill street blues which is at this point the biggest and most successful show there's ever been really certainly in the world of of crime fiction it's by 1984 it's won the primetime emmy award four times in a row and including loads of nominations and awards for acting from different characters in it season four had just finished there was three more seasons to come this was like the most powerful show on the on tv at the time <laughs> so, so it's no wonder he's a bit narked and he's put into this stuff all this specific details he's noticed about it you wonder whether he's got a point don't you you know there just seems to be Although it's quite strange how he uses Ollie to voice this, and yet his main characters kind of like saying, well, I don't really see a, a link there. Yeah, it's because there's a couple of episodes of Hill Street Blues featuring this character called Charlie Weeks, yeah. who was uh, an outwardly racist cop who had, who kills a black person in, in one of the episodes, but for, in the show's language, legitimate reasons. 
and this is a very strange and difficult time to be discussing cops, violence, and the, the murder of black people, even it's, in these fictional uh, things from the past. But that's where that's why Ollie Weeks has picked on that character. But the funny thing is that character was only in like two episodes of Hill Street Blues. So Ollie Weeks has got this massive bee in his bonnet about it. Yeah, as perhaps well. That character's the uh, the straw that broke the camel back, uh, camel's back as far as uh, Evan Hunter was concerned. Yeah, so you just, do get a feeling this that this was was his evidence that he would have taken to a trial and you know in a court case uh, try to sue them for plagiarism and he would have just sort of gone but he has a char- he has this character that does this and Ferrillo sounds a bit like Corella and he would have been laughed out of court. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> That's what I think would have happened. Yeah, it's uh, sure. it's odd that you can't help but think he's got a bit of a point, but. You know, so what? You can't copyright. Yeah, it's squad-based drama, can you? With a with a a a character with an Italian-sounding name. Yeah, you know. So yes, it probably is a bit close to the uh, the uh, the bone in terms of its concept and you know the Italian lead. But you know, he should just be congratulating himself for having the the uh, idea about 25 years earlier than Hill Street Blues got on air. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Rather than being pissed off about it. But he, he seems yeah. to reconcile with the fact that he's convinced these books will be still going uh, when the TV shows uh, Cornflakes or something, whatever he calls it, which uh, which I suppose we, <laughs> they, they were. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a funny one, really. But it's a, it's a great bit of the author's voice breaking through in no uncertain terms, that bit there, in, in terms of one of the few really humorous bits of the book. Yeah. The other one being something you alluded to before, which is Maya Maya suddenly deciding to wear a wig. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and the absolute uh, Mickey that gets taken out of him by everyone who comes across. Yeah, they all pretend they don't know who he is, don't they, when the... Carella draws his uh, revolver on it. He's good, doesn't he? Yeah. Which <laughs> can you state your business, a, <laughs> sir? It's, it's actually one of the weird a bit of sort Carella business that as yeah. well. I don't think Carella, even for a joke, would draw his gun. No, uh, but he does in this. You wouldn't think so, but uh, yeah. <laughs> but I like the fact that yeah, Maya decides to get rid of the wig when some guy asks him, "Are you wearing a wig?" Because I'm thinking of getting one, but you know, one that looks good. <laughs> anyway right i think we're gonna have to uh start summing up really so we've been on a bit of an uptick with the scores of late particularly with ice which we sort of ranked very highly in in fact it sort of it goes to being towards being one of the top rated ones we've ever done but we're gonna have to sum this one up so i will start seeing as i have made a point of being quite so whingy about it <laughs> And yeah, my my feeling is that he's having he's, he strays a bit too far into having his cake and eating it. And by having essentially, if it, if he wrote this book ten years previously, he might it, this might have been two books when he might have explored the stories individually a bit further each. Because this is two hundred and seventy pages, it's not the biggest, but it's it's not the smallest either. And I reckon either either one of the two stories in this book could have been a book on a, on their own of the uh, sort of older length of the stories as they once were. Mm. I feel there's just too much going on and it, it means that he doesn't really get time to fully explore and, and give weight, the proper sort of weight to the issues in it. 
I look forward to getting onto a good old madcap mass murderer like the uh, <laughs> the deaf the deaf man to sort of lighten the mood, which is such a silly thing to have to say, really. And this does also contain one of my least favourite chapters of the series so far, which is chapter six of this book, where basically every single cop is thinking about the deaf man and having sex. And it's just, ugh, I've made me want to wash my hands afterwards. <laughs> as the, the book as a whole did, really. So I am going to be fairly critical of it and I am going to give it, I'm giving it 50 police shields. Ooh. So I'll move on to you, Morgan. Okay. Um, I mean, I think everything you've said is completely um, reasonable, to be honest, and I, I do agree with you. I, I do find some positives in there. Um, I, I think some of the squad room stuff um, is pretty good, actually. I, I, I like uh, some of the humour in it. Uh, happy to see Annie Rawls arriving. I think she's a good character, although... I. I Having written a character like that, I don't really believe she'd immediately fall into bed with Cotton, as we've said. But she's a good character nonetheless. Happy to see her turn up. But yeah, I think my my main issue is just the, both of the two kind of crimes that the novel revolves around, as well as being bloody horrible. The, the motivations, I know we're saying maybe that's the point, but they just don't ring true. The the serial rape as well. I, you just wonder how he's got away with it for that long, and the the motivation behind it just seems absolutely just crazy. I know there are crazy people about about, but mm-hmm. yeah, it, it just it it does leave a bit of a bad taste. So I, I might go a little bit higher, but I'm going to go. Um, I think fifty six police shields. Okay. And I come to Steve-O. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think I kind of enjoyed it a bit more. I don't know whether that makes me a bad <laughs> a bad person. Perhaps I am a bad person. I don't know. I, I did enjoy the depth of it, which, you know, some of the slimmer entries, I think, you know, the, the, he's allowed to have a bit more depth of description, really. And, you know, I did like kind of the... The investigation. I think you're both right in terms of the the, the actual crimes. Um, perhaps he's wasting the, the new characters as well. And yeah, the, there's a bit of a fundamental problem with the motives. I think, which is is fair yeah. enough. But you know, I think it does have its redeeming features. Really. Hmm. Um, yeah, no, I, I don't know. I think I would be up kind of seventy police shields, a seven out of ten entry. Really, I, I think. You know, if you address some of the issues and maybe tone it down and, yeah, perhaps they're fundamental issues that mean it's not quite as good. But I think I would go 70. Okay, then. Well, that gives us a a grand Kenneth total with our patented rounding down system <laughs> of, uh, of 58 police shields. And I think that's probably the broadest spread we've had of uh, scores on in the series so far out of the ones we've done. But I'll just quickly, before we finish off, I've got a couple of the contemporary reviews. And funnily enough, I couldn't find a New York Times one for this. So I don't know. I presume it was reviewed in the New York Times. I couldn't find it. I've got a review from the Irish Times from the 22nd of December 1984. And it ends with two mass criminals, one a rapist, one a murderer who hangs his girl victim from lampposts, makes for much unpleasantness, too much Mm. yuck is how that concludes. 
And the Observer review from the 9th of December 1984 by Christopher Wordsworth, which is the one that's quoted on the back of my book, probably on the ones you've got as well, I should imagine. Well, I'll read the whole thing. It's very short because he says the best McBain of recent vintage. And that is saying something. Repetitive rape, a a rotor of the same girls and the gruesome multiple killings of female athletes, blood, sex, toil, autopsies, the whole stitched together by the daddy of the police procedural until you can almost taste those greasy French fries in the 87th Precinct's canteen. Do they have a canteen? (laughs) <laughs> well there's, there's never no. been any mention of a canteen ever no. maybe that's somebody reviewing it who's not read it maybe <laughs> but he's, he's reviewed a few of them it's it's bonkers yeah that bit but that's the quote that's on the back of my edition of the book yeah. as well so it's and then gene m white in the washington post in september of, of 1984 is quite effusive about it as well and she's generally one of the more critical voices we have on these on these things as well lightning is a sturdy police novel with the mcbain hallmarks spare prose gritty street scenes dogged police legwork crisp dialogue interrogation transcripts and the very human cops and then the motives for these rapes and murders are astounding truly mind-boggling not even a hint would be fair on the balance of the the three reviews i could find it's it's been received very well certainly at the time and maybe it's a more modern sensibility that's made me feel the way i do about it i, I, don't know. I think it's it, it, it'll be one of the entries that of all of them will be up the top of the ones that have not aged particularly well and yeah. I think his yeah. his fundamental way of dealing with female characters is probably his 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 biggest Achilles heel that never goes away. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, it is probably a function of when you have got those female characters doing more, that Achilles heel is just revealed more, isn't it? Yeah, you know what I mean. And, and that will be a function of kind of him, the time, uh, you know, just. Yeah, it's his kind of biggest flaw, isn't it, really? Yeah. Well, we shall move on from this anyway, because the next book we're going to be doing is, as we've already sort of revealed in this, is Eight Black Horses, the next Deaf Man novel. And we'll be back in our bonus episode to do our usual roundup of the original book covers, the book covers we've got, and a load of absolute nonsense about (laughs) 1984, I'm sure. Which will be a nice relief, I think. So, until then, I'm going to say Tara and Steve-O. Goodbye. And Morgan. Fairly well. <laughs> <laughs>